U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and over there is the XO, Stephen. Hey, Stephen. Hey there, everyone. Are you ready to get into the naval portion of the overview of the Civil War? Ironclads, ironclads, ironclad is not happening this episode. Sorry, folks. The captain told me the bad news. I told everybody the bad news last episode. Yes, but I held out hope that you were lying. No, I'm sorry. But we will get to them. I promised you we will get to them, and we will get to them. All right, all right. So are you ready to get underway, my disappointed XO? Let's cast off. All right. So, the U.S. Navy was small in 1861 when the Civil War starts. And, of course, it is rapidly added to and enlarged. In 1865, is it, inc- it is increased to 6,000 officers and 45,000 enlisted men. Holy crap! With 671 vessels, with a total tonnage of 510,396. So, what were those numbers in 1860 and early 1861 then? Because with the army being at around 16k... Before this whole debacle went down, I can only imagine the Navy was half a dozen vessels and maybe 2,000. So, they ranged between 80 and 100 vessels. In 1860 and 61? Right before the Civil War, yes. That's a lot more than I thought. Well, I mean, they still had all the piracy stuff and everything like that that they were dealing with beforehand. Hmm, okay. Uh, For men, strength, that's about 10,000 enlisted in officers. Okay, so it's safe to say the Navy quadrupled in size in those four years. Yes. Okay. I believe that would be safe to say. Their officer corps was almost at their total strength at the end of it. So, its main mission was to blockade Confederate ports and to take control of the river system and also to defend against Confederate raids on the high seas. And they were to be ready for a possible war with the British Royal Navy. Ah, yes, the old, will the Brits back the Confederacy or won't they? Or just, will the British take advantage of our reduced capability at the end of this bloody massacre? Now, the main river war was fought in the West, where a number of major rivers gave access to the heartland of the Confederacy. And in the East, the Navy supplied and moved army forces up and down the coast. And occasionally, they shelled Confederate installations. So, by early in 1861, General Winfield Scott had he had come up with the Anaconda plan to win the war with as little bloodshed as possible. He argued that a blockade of the Union main ports would weaken the Confederate economy. So you could say his Anaconda wants, his Anaconda wants, his Anaconda wants to strangle that Southern economy, son. Yes. This 
pretty much just went from the coast of Maine all the way down around Florida up into one of the river main rivers in Texas all the way up and back around to below Iowa so a really really long you know red rover red rover send over Johnny Reb an anaconda that are thousands of miles long <laughs> So Lincoln, he does adopt parts of the plan, but he overrules Scott's caution about 90-day volunteers. Public opinion demanded an immediate attack, though, by the army to capture Richmond. They wanted Richmond, Virginia, which was... Oh, the Confederate capital. Sorry, I thought you were finishing that sentence. You're supposed to. Look at the outline, damn it. <laughs> Insert joke about XO not paying attention. Uh, sorry, I was distracted by Netflix. I'm not even getting into that. <laughs> so in April, Lincoln announces the Union blockade of all southern ports. Commercial ships could not get insurance, and regular traffic just stopped the southerners they made a blunder because they started embargoing cotton exports before the blockade was effective so oh, by the no yeah yeah so by the time they realized their mistake it was it was too late gosh their, that was your cash crop yeah, their their kingdom of cotton was dead. They pretty much, their cotton exports went down to about 10%. Less than 10%. The blockade shuts down 10 Confederate seaports with railheads, which is where they pretty much moved all their cotton. And by June, warships were stationed off of the principal southern ports so, of course, the war, like all wars, they prompt industrial revolution. And this made many naval innovations emerge during the time. Most notably, you know it, you love it. Uh, you want some more of it? Beef jerky. The ironclads. Oh. <laughs> now, when the Confederacy figured out that they had to meet or match the Union's naval superiority, they respond to the blockade by building and or converting 130 vessels. Oh, my goodness. Which included... 26 ironclads and floating batteries. Now, only half of these actually saw service, and many of them were equipped with ram bows, which created a condition among the Union squadrons whenever they were threatened with, quote, ram fever. <laughs> Ah, uh, sail eternal, shiny and chrome, you mad lads. 
But of course, the Union had overwhelming naval superiority. And they had their own ironclads as well. So they were, they were really unsuccessful. The Confederacy also experimented with a submarine, but you know, that did not work out very well for them. Well, sometimes to develop a new kind of ship, you have to almost sink it a few times. Yeah. They also experimented with the CSS Virginia, which they based on the sunken Union ship, the Merrimack. They uh, reversed engineered it. And on its first deployment into battle, the Virginia decimated the wooden fleet that the Union sent against it. Well, we went from huzzah, her sides are made of iron, to actual iron sides. Now, the next day, that's when the USS Monitor shows up. And that is a Union ironclad. So that brings them to the Battle of the Ironclads, which we will get into. And this, of course, ends... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil it. It was a draw. I, I was going to say, I, I always heard ironclad on ironclad fights during the Civil War just came down to... Okay, we... It's loud. I think half of us have lost our hearing at this point. We've made a bunch of dents. They've made a bunch of dents. Have we done any actual damage, though? <laughs> well, we'll find out when we get into them. <laughs> but this does mark a worldwide transition to ironclad warships. Now, the Confederacy does lose the Virginia when it was scuttled to prevent capture by the Union. And the Union just... They started copy-pasting the Monitor everywhere. Now, of course, the Confederacy, all the smart people in the U.S. are in the North. So this pretty much left the South without the technology to build effective warships. So they try to go to Britain to get warships from them. So the British investors that they went to they did build small fast steam driven blockade runners and they traded arms and luxuries brought into britain from bermuda canada and the bahamas in return for that 10 percent of very high cotton that was coming out now the union navy did seize a blockade runner and the ship and cargo were condemned as a prize and sold and the proceeds were given to the Navy sailors. Now the captured crewmen who were mostly British citizens, they were simply just released, which is a far cry of what has been done in the past. I mean, we weren't at war with them. They were just running a blockade that they weren't supposed to. So yeah, we'll take the ship, we'll take the goods. You guys just hope you learned your lesson. Back to Canada with you. Or Bermuda. Ain't sending you all yeah. the way to the UK on our dime. No. Just, you know, the fighting's going on over there. You might want to go that way instead. Yeah. So, of course, because of all the blockades and everything, the southern economy, it pretty much almost completely collapses during the war. They end up with severe 
deterioration of food supplies, especially in the cities where there, you know, there's a large population and the failure of the Southern railroads and the loss of control of the main rivers, the Northern armies who were foraging and the seizures of animals and crops by these before mentioned Confederate armies, this, you know, decimates the Southern economy. So uh, a fun little fact about the British selling ships to the Confederacy, the U.S., after the war, they demand that Britain pay for the damage done by the ships. How'd that go over? Well, the British paid $15 million to the U.S. <laughs> so no British-American War number 3 or 4 or whatever we're at to at this point in time. Well, that would be just shy of a quarter of a billion dollars in 2022 money. So I'd, I'd say consider reparations paid. Yeah. The Union Strategy in 1862 called for simultaneous advances along four axes. A guy named McLennan would lead the main thrust into Virginia towards Richmond. Forces in Ohio were to go through Kentucky and into Tennessee. And the Missouri contingent would go south along the Mississippi River. And the westernmost forces would attack from Kansas. Now, Ulysses Grant, he uses river transport and gunboats from Andrew Fuchs to threaten the Confederacy. Gibraltar of the West at Columbus in Kentucky. Okay. And he was pretty much stopped at Belmont. Now, the Confederates, they lacked their own gunboats and were forced to retreat. So the Union, they go back and take control of Western Kentucky in March. So at this time, the Union was sending ocean-going warships up the Mississippi. They also used timberclads, tinclads, and armored gunboats. Now, the shipyards in Cairo, in Illinois, and in St. Louis... They built new boats or modified steamboats for the war. So a lot of converted civilian vessels for uh, patrolling rivers. Yes. Well, you have to have shallow draft vessels. Right, right. Except for in the deeper ones like the Mississippi. So they take control of the Red, Tennessee, Cumberland, Mississippi, and Ohio rivers after gaining victories at Fort Henry and Fort Donelson. And this allowed them to supply Grant's forces as he moved into Tennessee. So in Pittsburgh Landing in Tennessee, the Confederate Army made a surprise attack that actually pushes the Union forces against the river. Now overnight, the Navy lands an additional force of reinforcements, and this allows Grant to counterattack. And of course, this gives them a decisive victory. This is the first battle with a high casualty rate. And the high casualty rate is going to repeat over and over and over and over. And do you think a big contributing factor for those high casualties are that these are officers who were trained together, 
like knew the kind of tactics that the other would want to be using and pretty much mirroring each other almost? No, I believe it's because of the motivation and the belief in what they were fighting for causing the fight more ferociously. Oh, pretty much instead of a unit breaking when it reaches, you know, 5 to 10% casualties, that number would have to be a lot higher before they break. Yeah. I see. Memphis now falls to the Union and becomes a key base for further advances along the Mississippi River. And in April of 62, the U.S. forces goes past the Confederate defenses south of New Orleans, which causes the Confederacy to abandon the city. And this gives the Union a critical anchor into the South, the Deep South, if you want to get technical. Because New Orleans is about as South as you can get at this time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not being the Florida panhandle. Well, and... You know, between control of the Mississippi and that, you literally just cut the Confederacy in half now. As long as they can keep control of the river. Yes. Or at least crossing the river. So Grant relies really heavy on the naval forces to help him with his complex and long campaign. That results in the surrender of Vicksburg in July of 1863. And pretty much the full control of Mississippi. So let's jump over to the east. Now, there's, of course, fierce resistance. But the Confederacy does not have very many forces in Virginia at Manzas in July of 1861. So Major General Irving McDowell brings his Union troops over there and they have the first battle of bull run mcdowell's troops are then forced back to washington dc by the confederate forces who was commanded by general joseph e johnston and we heard this guy's name before pgt beauregard this is where general thomas jackson receives his nickname of stonewall because he quote, stood like a stone wall against Union troops. And isn't the first battle of Bull Run what kind of uh, opened the Union's eyes to, like, not just, you know, the leadership, you know, Lincoln, the generals, but the public as well, like, oh, this isn't going to be a splendid little summer outing of marching to the south and like, now, now, you've had your fun. Stop it. Yeah. But... I believe that's just a army battle, so we won't be getting into that. Because we right. are not the U.S. Army History Podcast. As you made very clear last episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to keep, make me keep pointing it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, this loss alarms the Congress. And so they bring forth the Critton-Johnson Resolution on July 25th. And this states that the war is being fought to preserve the Union and not to end slavery. Yet. Right. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation is coming. Mm-hmm. 
So Major General George B. McLennan takes command of the Union Army at the Potomac. And on July 26th, and he began his war in earnest in 1862. Now, Lincoln, he was urging him to begin a offensive. And so he and so McLennan attacks Virginia in the spring of 62. He goes through the peninsula between the York River and the James River. Now, his army reaches the gates of Richmond. And that's where Johnson halts his advance. Then Robert E. Lee comes in with James Longstreet and Stonewall Jackson and defeats him in the Seven Days Battle and forces him to retreat. And, you know, the South has a number more victories at the beginning here. Now, this starts giving the Confederacy a big head. They're like, look at <laughs> what we're doing. We're beating the heck out of these guys so easily. And so it decides to make their first invasion to the north. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, General Lee, he takes 45,000 men across the Potomac into Maryland on September 5th. Lincoln, he's like, okay, we got to send more troops to McLennan. These guys are coming in. And they fight the Battle of Antium near Sharpsburg in Maryland, which is the single bloodiest day in United States military history. Lee was like, holy crap. Apparently I'm not as good as I thought I was. And he retreats before his entire army is destroyed. Hmm. And this is a victory for the Union because, you know, this stops Lee from invading the North. And this gave Lincoln the opportunity to announce the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, of course, McLennan, he's being cautious and, you know, doesn't follow up on chasing Lee down and utterly destroying his army. So the, the army was like, you know what? Get this guy out of here. We're bringing in somebody more aggressive. And this was Major General Ambrosi Burnside and is quickly defeated at the Battle of Fredericksburg. But what can't be defeated is his facial hair. Yeah. Yeah, this battle, there was about 12,000 Union soldiers killed or wounded. Oof. Yeah, because he kept sending them on frontal assaults. Does he not know how to flank? Well, you would think that after the first failed frontal assault, you would regroup and think it through. This guy was like, why are you guys coming back? Get back out there. Frontal assault. Frontal assault. <laughs> no, stop coming back. Frontal assault. So he was quickly replaced by Major General Joseph Hooker. Now, he too was unable to do anything to defeat Lee's army. He was probably, you know, too busy with the ladies of the night, but he was also outnumbered by the Confederates by more than two to one. Not great odds. Yeah, he was pretty much humiliated in the Battle of Chancellorsville. And this is where 
General Stonewall Jackson is mortally wounded by his own men and dies from his wounds. And that's why you check your fire, folks. Yeah. Friendly fire, not cool. So General Hooker is replaced by Major General George Meade. And Meade finally defeats Lee at the Battle of Gettysburg. This is said to be the bloodiest battle of the war and is often recited as the war's turning point. Lee's army suffers 28,000 casualties and Meade has 23,000. That is an awful lot in just three days. Yeah, that's what, 51,000 dead or wounded Americans? Yep. Now, Lincoln's pissed because Meade failed to go after Lee when he retreated. So Lincoln, he goes to the Western Theater to look for new leadership. And while this is happening, the Confederate stronghold of Vicksburg surrenders, giving the Union control of the Mississippi River and permanently isolating the Western Confederacy, which, you know, produces the new leader Lincoln needed, which was Ulysses S. Grant. So that brings us to the Western Theater. Now, the Confederacy, they did well in the East. It was pretty much the opposite in the West. <laughs> Fall back. Fall back a little more. We'll come back. Yeah, they were driven away from Missouri very early as during the Battle of Pea Ridge. And then, of course, you know, the invasion of Kentucky ended Kentucky's neutrality and turned that entire state against the Confederacy. Nashville and Tennessee fell to the Union early in 62, leading to local food supplies and livestock going to the Union instead of the Confederacy. This also opened the Mississippi to Union traffic to the southern border of Tennessee and taking island number 10. <laughs> oh, truly a prestigious spot. <laughs> and this is in New Madrid in Tennessee. And then they took Memphis. And then in April, the Union Navy captures New Orleans, as we stated before, which allows Union forces to begin moving up the Mississippi, which means that the only place that prevents the Union from taking control of the entire river is the city of Vicksburg, which was a fortress. Uh, so the Confederacy attempts to invade Kentucky again. How's that go for him? Well, it ended in a victory, but it was pretty meaningless because General Bragg was forced to end his invasion of Kentucky and retreat because he had no support in that state. We won! And we have no supplies and no public support and... Oh, look, reinforcements. Okay. Um, fellas, we'll come back for a third time. <laughs> I promise. There is one clear victory in the West for the Confederacy. And this was the Battle of Chickamauga. This is when Bragg, he has been reinforced by Lieutenant General James Longstreet. 
and he defeated Rosecrans and and Major General George Henry Thomas. This was a very heroic defensive stand, but they were forced to retreat to Chattanooga, which Bragg then comes in and sieges. Now, up until he was transferred to the east, the main strategist for the Union in the western area of operations was Ulysses S. Grant, which is probably why there was so much success, because he was a hell of a tactician. Grant personally marches a relief to Rosencrans and defeats Bragg at Chattanooga. This drives the Confederate forces out of Tennessee and opens a route to Atlanta and pretty much the heart of the Confederacy. Well done. Yes. So that will take us to the Trans-Mississippi Theater of War. This is described as extensive guerrilla warfare. See, the Confederacy lacked troops and the logistical support required to support regular armies. So this was pretty much roving Confederate bands. Hmm. Like Quantrill's Raiders. I'm sure you've heard of them. Yeah, pretty much just a bunch of... uh guys who were rounded up and like, all right, we're just going to run around, raise hell, and uh, anybody that we see that we believe is a Union sympathizer or anyone sporting Union colors, fair game. Exactly. They're, you know, they're terrorists. Mm -hmm. They went in and they terrorized the countryside. They hit military installations, which, as in a war, you're supposed to, but they also hit civilian settlements. Now, there's also the Sons of Liberty and the Order of the American Knights, who were also operating, and they attacked pro-Union people, elected office holders, and unarmed, uniformed soldiers. Yeah. And these guys were pretty much operating. They could not be hunted down until an entire Union army was brought in. An entire infantry division. That's uh, that's not amazing. And what it also did is it harmed the Confederacy because when you're praying against the local population, they don't want to have anything to do with you. Nope. So Missouri stayed Union. And actually, when Lincoln came up for re-election, he got 70% of the vote. Whoa. Now, there's the areas south and west of Missouri saw a lot of small-scale military action, and they wanted to control the Indian Territory and New Mexico Territory for, you know, the Union. And the Confederates, they did try to get in there, but they were repulsed and exiled into Arizona. And then Arizona government was exiled into Texas. A lot of shuffling of governments. Yeah. So, speaking of Indian territory, civil war broke out inside the tribes themselves as well. Hmm. And about 12,000 Indian warriors fought for the Confederacy. And 
there were some, but not as much fighting for the Union. So once Vicksburg falls in 1863, General Kirby Smith, who was in Texas, was told by Jefferson Davis that he can't expect any more help east of the Mississippi. Now, this means that he did not have the resources to beat the Union. Mm -hmm. But he did build up a formidable arsenal at Taylor. And along with his own Kirby Smithdom economy and a virtual independent fiefdom in Texas, which included railroad construction and international smuggling, this caused the Union to pretty much not directly engage him because he was a, still a pretty big threat. Yeah. Which, you know, pretty much means that Louisiana and Texas remained in Confederate hands throughout the entire war. Well, I was going to say, Texas uh, took a little while, even after uh, General Lee's surrender in 1865, to, you know, raise the flag of truce, if memory serves, didn't it? Well, I mean, in any war, you're always going to have those last holdouts that don't believe it. Mm -hmm. The ones that are high-spirited and doesn't care and will <laughs> keep going. <laughs> so what you're saying is it's a mindset that still holds true in Texas. Anywhere, really. <laughs> I mean, how many holdouts of the Japanese soldiers after World War II? Oh, goodness. I believe the last confirmed uh, Japanese World War II soldier that was brought home was in the 70s. Yeah, 1973, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's everywhere. You're always going to have some groups. Oh, see, I was just making a joke about how, you know, you, you say you Texans are, you know, very, very spirited and very, very hard-headed sometimes about sticking to something. I never said that. No? Okay. Besides, I'm not a Texan. Oh. I just live here. <laughs> well, I suppose that's what I get for staying in a state. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the war. The At the beginning of 64, Lincoln makes Grant commander of all Union armies. He's like, you know what? You're doing such a hell of a job. You got it. You're the boss. You are the top dog. That's boss with dollar signs instead of S's. Exactly. And he makes his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac. And he puts Major General William Sherman in command of most of the Western armies. Grant, he understands the concept of total war and believed, along with Lincoln and Sherman, that only the utter defeat of the Confederate forces and their economic base would end the war. In other words, total, unconditional surrender. Now, this did not mean that he wanted to kill civilians, but it did mean that he wanted to destroy homes, farms, and railroads. So Grant devises a strategy that would strike at the entire Confederacy from multiple directions. And this is going to require a high amount of coordination. 
So the generals, George Meade and Benjamin Butler, were ordered to move against Lee near Richmond. A man named General Franz Sigel and Philip Sheridan were ordered to attack the Shenandoah Valley. General Sherman was ordered to capture Atlanta and then march to the Atlantic Ocean. And Generals George Crook and William Averill were ordered to attack the railroad supply lines in West Virginia. And lastly, Major General Nathan P. Banks was to capture Mobile, Alabama. Union forces in the east tried to maneuver around Lee, and they ended up fighting several battles during that part of the eastern campaign. And then three other battles were resulted in heavy, heavy Union losses. But it did force Lee to fall back and then fall back again and fall back again. So he started having to do a fighting retreat. Just the entire way back. Now, unlike the other generals, they did attempt to outflank Lee. And this, this unfortunately failed. And Butler, who was the one to do it, was trapped inside the Bermuda Hundred River Bend. But, you know, Grant is very tenacious, I guess you could say. And even though he received over 65,000 casualties in seven weeks, he kept pressing Lee's army. He pressed them from northern Virginia back to Richmond. Mm -hmm. Then he pins them down in Petersburg where they pretty much engaged in trench warfare for nine months. Holy crap. Talk about World War I, the prequel. Yeah. This is the aggressiveness Lincoln wanted from the beginning. So Grant finds himself a commander named General Philip Sheridan. And he was like, wow, you're aggressive. I like that. <laughs> And he puts him in charge and wins the Valley Campaigns of 1864. At first, he was repelled at the Battle of New Market by the former U.S. Vice President, John C. Breckinridge, who is now a Confederate. Hmm. But this would prove to be the Confederacy's last major victory. Sheridan then redoubles his efforts and defeats Major General Jubal A. Early in a number of battles and ended at a decisive victory for the Union at the Battle of Cedar Creek. Sheridan then destroys the agricultural base of the Shenandoah Valley. So while this is happening, Sherman, he maneuvers from Chattanooga to Atlanta taking out Confederate generals Joseph E. Johnson and John Bell Hood while doing this. And, of course, the when Atlanta falls, this pretty much guarantees Lincoln's re-election. Yeah, a victory just before an election is always a good thing for getting people into the polls. Yeah. Hood, when he leaves, because he's Confederate, so when mm -hmm. Hood leaves Atlanta, he swings around to start attacking Sherman's supply lines and attempt to invade Tennessee. 
that's when Union Major General John Schofield steps up and he goes, no, no, stop it. You're not doing this. And defeats him at the Battle of Franklin. Then George H. Thomas comes in and in Nashville destroys Hood's army. He's like, you're done. No more. Get wrecked. So Sherman, after that's all done, he marches away from Atlanta. And as he's going to the Atlantic Ocean, because that was what he was ordered to do, he lays waste to about 20% of the farms in Georgia. Just obliterates them. Hmm. He comes up to the Atlantic Ocean at Savannah in December. And Sherman, he was followed by thousands of freed slaves. Really? Yeah. Now, of course, there's no major battles while he's marching to the Atlantic because his main enemy in the area was effectively destroyed. So he turns north and goes through South Carolina and then North Carolina to hmm. approach yeah, to approach the Confederate lines in Virginia from the south. Which means Lee is getting get hit by both sides now. So Lee's army is now surrounded. It has been thinned by desertion and casualties. So this allows Grant to win a decisive victory at the Battle of Five Forks on April 1st, forcing Lee to evacuate. The Confederate capital falls. You want to know who they fall to? It's really cool. Um, in fighting, I'm going to assume people who are just fed up with uh, the war and just like, look, we tried this. It didn't work. Can we just end it, please? Well, no, it does fall to a Union force. It is the 25 Corps comprised of black troops. Oh, that makes me happy. I know. The remaining Confederate units, they go west after a defeat at Sailor's Creek. And finally, Robert E. Lee's like, continuing this fight is tactically and logistically impossible. Yep, we, we are spent. Yeah. So Lee surrenders his army on April 9th, 1865 at the McLean house in the village of Apromox Courthouse. There was a untraditional gesture on Grant's part, a gesture of respect and anticipation of peacefully restoring Confederate States to the Union. Lee was permitted to keep his sword and his horse. Huh. That is definitely not normal. No. And, of course, you know what happens five days later. Yeah. Yeah. For those that don't, you want to explain? Well, um, to keep it short and sweet, a uh, certain actor by the name of John Wilkes Booth, who was a Southern sympathizer, decided that he would take out his frustration on the President of the United States. And knowing that he was going to be attending a play at the playhouse that he performed at, decided to ambush the president with a revolver 
shoot him in the head, and make a getaway. Yep. Becoming the first person to assassinate a United States president and getting apprehended shortly afterwards. Yeah, his... He did not last long. But this puts Andrew Jackson into the president's seat. Now, Confederate forces, when they hear of Lee's surrender, they also surrender. And Johnson officially declares the end of the insurrection on May 9th, 1865. The next month, June 23rd, the last Confederate general surrendered his forces. And this was a Cherokee, actually. Stand Watai. All right, so I think we're going to leave it at the surrender, the end of the war, and next time we are going to get into the end credits, talking about the about some diplomacy with Europe after this, the cost of the war, the emancipation of the African Americans and re reconstruction of the US. How does that sound? I'd say that sounds pretty good. And then after that, I will do something special for you. Uh Peacock special number two. Ironclads. I will give you your Ironclads episode before we get into the battles. Yes. So that is where we're going to leave it. Any thoughts? Uh, well, sometimes when you start a rebellion, you get your ass handed to you. Well, somebody sure does. <laughs> That's true. But if you guys want to reach out to us, you can do so. You can tell us your thoughts on that at US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com. Or you can even tweet at us at USN History Pod. Also, the XO is taking applications for duels. I what? So feel free to challenge him on Twitter or when you leave that five-star review. If you do it in a review, he has no choice but to accept. Uh, all right, but as a challenge party, I do get to choose the weapon, right? That That is the rules of engagement? Yes. Wonderful. Um, just blanket across the board... No, that's copyright, and uh, we already have one large entity after us, so not a certain saber. All right, guys. If you want to support us another way, we have the ship store. So, yeah, everything is in the show notes, all the links. So, until next time, fair winds and following seas. Have a good one, everyone. Also, I choose trebuchets. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.